under my belt and I am bored as fuck I cannot even begin to describe to you guys how much I want to leave my fucking house and just do anything other than be fucking here favorite part of my, my quarantine so far is that uh, my ex's uh, friends do not believe that I'm under quarantine I'm like why would you say that shit like you're trying to start drama but like no bitches I am actually under quarantine. Like, it's one of those things, like, even my boss is texting me about, like, I don't know. Like, I fucking have no idea. The health department has not gotten back to me. I am still massively under quarantine, and it's just as annoying to me as it is to everybody else. And furthermore, like, what am I supposed to do to expedite the process for the quarantine? Like, I don't have an ability to strong-arm the health department into telling me whether or not I can be released or not. It's just taking a really long fucking time. And it's over the weekend, so you're not quite sure. Dude, I even had one of my nurse friends check up on my charts just to see if the chart came back, and it didn't. It's like, I don't know what else I can do. I don't know what else I can say, other than I'm just under fucking quarantine. They're going to get back to me when they get back to me. Retail worker, like fucking not that important to test. Although I have managed to get a lot of shit done under the quarantine. Like, I figured out the dual mic situation for the podcast. So the uh, the podcast with the Fat and Tidal Bastards should be really good. Because now we have two audio sources and we'll be able to key in a lot better. Um, there's a lot of things that have happened. Like, I fixed multiple computers. I yanked a hard drive and recovered tax data for somebody. Like, I've done a lot in the... Like, just, I've never cleaned so much shit so thoroughly, just completely out of boredom. And I'm just chilling with my dog, dogs, and doing dog shit, and just fucking hanging out, and I watched a fuck ton of Archer, South Park, Rick and Morty, I watched a couple of Contagion shows, um, just, just fucking trying to stave off the boredom. It comes from just being in your house all the time. And it turns out my dream is not that much of a dream. Like, I always wanted to be, like, locked up in my house and get paid to do it. But, like, at a certain point, I want to see another human being's face. Like, I'm just fucking bored. And what's really weird is that I'm not doing the same things I thought I would do. Like, I thought I'd be playing, like, a lot more video games or, like, uh... I don't know, getting into some more shit, doing some more creative stuff. And all I can find myself doing is that I'm doing more, like, uh, creative content and, like, uh, like tech work and shit. Like, I bought a SATA cable and a screwdriver kit to yank an old hard drive. I didn't find any of the old show data that was uh, usable. Like, it was corrupted. But that's okay. So, like, as we get on with more content and more shows, we'll get some more stuff. So this is the second episode of the El Bastardo Magnifi Show, and I am your host, El Bastardo Magnifico Mad Matt. 
and I want to talk about a couple of things that I've been dwelling on for a while. Uh, just some things that I've been watching, catching up on, just boredom stuff, that kind of thing. So the first thing I want to bring up is The Witcher. So we all have seen at this point The Witcher TV show. And I will say that Henry Cavill plays one hell of a Geralt. Like, really enjoy his performance. Thought it was pretty good. Feel like that that guy conveys Geralt really well. Um, like Jeskier in the show, even though that's supposed to be Dandelion. But I believe the reason they call him Jeskier is because it's a Polish translation. So, like, my dude's supposed to be Jeskier in the show. Uh, when they tried to ch- translate into English from the game, they came up with Dandelion. Because apparently in that language, that's the name of some flower that we don't have a translation for, like, not directly. So uh, that's how they came up with that name. And in the show, Dandelion's one of the best characters, Jaskier. Uh, the toss a coin to your Witcher. Oh my god, there hasn't been a catchier thing since fucking Mbop. Like, I just, the whole show, as a, as a fan of the Witcher games, really felt genuine. And I, I like that they gave you the uh, identity that he was the Butcher of Blaviken and showing you why that's why he was called that. I, I really like them showing that Geralt's fucking moody and he's always got some sort of gruffy, humphy thing to do. But in the uh, books, he's a lot more talkative. But I did like that they played it more of like a video game translation than a book translation, even though a lot of the source material is coming from the books. I just felt like the show as a whole was doing really well by the fans. In addition to that, I, I have been through like my 11th playthrough of The Witcher, and it still holds up to this day. It's still a phenomenal game. I'm having the most fun still playing that game. Although, now I'm starting to get a little bored of it because I'm on, like, like, my third straight playthrough and trying to make shit work, and it's just, like, not as interesting because I already know where to go and what to do and who's got who's there. I already have all my potions, and I already have all my, my grenades and stuff like that. It's just, like, ugh. Like, it's, I'm just not as much into it. Now, the cool thing, though, is that when you play the game through multiple times, you get a lot of different storyline. Like, the game is really rich in diversity as far as storyline goes. And I don't remember doing a lot of the shit that I've been doing, but that's why I've been doing the playthroughs. And as as it gets more difficult and gets higher in level, and, like, the gear changes and stuff like that, I'm playing different styles. Like, the game has a bunch of different ways to play it, and it still holds up today. So, like, I think it's, like, $14.99 for the uh, the Witcher, uh, like, Mastered Edition and the two expansion packs. Like, you absolutely need to pick that up and do a playthrough if you haven't, like, done so so far. Like, definitely a recommendation. As far as the show goes, I enjoy the show. Um, I, I binge-watched it. I had to watch a bunch of episodes over again because, like, I'd watch it while I was going to sleep or this, that, or the other. And so, like, I caught the gist of the majority of the stuff, having seen it through so many times. But, like, I really feel like if you're interested in the Witcher's lore, watch the show. If you're really interested in how the Witcher works, play the game. And that's what I have on that. And uh, just kind of segueing off the Scandinavian culture of the the Witcher, I'd like to talk about uh, my new favorite director... And some of the stuff that he's done lately, which is Ari Aster and the Midsummer and Heredity films. Um, I have found those films to be just 
one of the absolute best contents I think I've ever seen. Like, as far as something different, something new, different feelings, different anxieties. Like, I think this guy's really nailing it with the way that he's making his movies. And so, he said that Midsummer was supposed to feel like a breakup. Like, and a lot of people can't get past just, like, how fucking weird that movie is. But to catch the tone, it absolutely feels like a breakup. Like, you're supposed to feel the kind of anxiousness and just predisposed, like, hatred of certain characters and, like, you're not sure why, but you just do. Like, the boyfriend in that show is not, like, or in that movie is not really, like, the worst guy in the world, but you can't help but not like him, right? Because the whole point of view is from uh, Frances Pugh's character and, and you're supposed to be empathizing with her. And some of the visuals and that, the fact that it was a horror movie that takes place almost exclusively in daylight, like, that was really cool. Now, there is a kill in the darkness and stuff like that, but that wasn't the focus, is the fact that they were just basically getting these guys to show up, and then they were basically setting them up for different types of sacrifices. So, I found the movie to be just one of the, one of the coolest films. I'm not going to say best, but I'm going to say coolest. Just coolest different films, especially like when the characters are on drugs, you're on drugs, so you see like the flowers moving and then like the May Day thing, and uh, just there's a lot of stuff in there, especially with the uh, jumping off the cliff, which is something that the elders of Vikings would do, like the blood eagle they put the one kid under, like that is something that has been written about. It's not confirmed if it's true or not, but it's probably true, you know, like just like they took a, a lot of time to make sure they got a lot of things right with just the creepy factor of how accurate everything seemed to be and the opening death scene with the uh, parents and the exhaust from the car and the hoses and shit like that fucking haunting like there's just the whole movie sets you on edge immediately and i don't see a lot of films doing that these days one of my favorite parts about Midsummer is that there never really feels like there's an antagonist to the story. Like, there's nobody to focus on as far as, like, directing your hate towards, like, this is the bad guy, or this is the monster, or this is the situation. And that's what's so offsetting about the movies is that in both movies, there's no, like, direct correlation between what you're supposed to be afraid, like, afraid of. You just know you're supposed to be afraid of it. And with the way that he's directing these movies from like such an emotional standpoint, I really think that these two movies have been two of the best movies produced in the last ten years. I don't have a lot of movies I would hold up in that kind of caliber. And I liked a lot of things about Midsummer. I liked the graphicness. I liked the fact that it was colorful. I like the fact that it was supposed to be welcoming, but there were signs everywhere about what was going to happen. Like, I liked a lot of things about this movie. It's probably up in my top ten at the moment. But there was a movie, the the original movie he made, like, this is, uh, Midsummer's supposed to be, like, the spiritual uh, sister to the movie Hereditary. And Hereditary was just off the chain to me. Like, I have never been so freaked out by a movie. And it was really cool because, like, it blended in aspects of 
supernatural horror, uh, graphic violence, uh, just just in general. So many things about that movie make you sit back and say, did I even really know what the fuck was going on? I had to watch that movie three fucking times to figure out exactly what I was seeing, exactly what was going on, how I knew what was going on, just different things. And... Like, the movie as a whole just delivered for me from some actors that I had thought had been, like, past their prime. You know, like, I didn't think Gabriel Burns was going to put out a performance, but he did, and he was believable, which was huge. Tony Collette did such an awesome job in that movie of just conveying this wide range of just horrifyingly traumatic emotions. And then Alexander Wolf, <coughs> excuse me, uh, did a great job in uh, just kind of showing the progressive like horror of some of the traumatic events he was going through. I especially love the aspect where you weren't quite sure if you were focusing in on the set or on one of the miniatures that uh, Colette had actually built. And so like the whole movie just kind of amps up everything as it goes through. And you're not really quite sure... Like, what's legit and what's not if you don't do multiple watch-throughs. I also like the use of the sound and just kind of, like, the tonality of how he built the film up as well. Like, you start out at a very simple point and you just escalate and escalate and escalate and you do this exponentially over the course of time. From where the scene where the sister gets beheaded to the scene where he sees his... Uh, his own reflection looking back at him, the clicks, and then the coven teaching Colette how to do the summoning without her knowing about it for the multi-generational spell, uh, to that last 30 minutes was maybe one of the most psychotic things I think I've ever seen. Like that scene where Tony Collette becomes fully possessed and was like chasing uh, Alex Wolf through the, the set, and then they get up into the attic and she does the... Uh, the the decapitation like that shit to me was just like the most insane shit I think I've ever seen and what's funny is uh, I, we recorded a show that I lost Quincy and I and uh, like we always crash in the studio right that's just what we do we've been drinking and we're trying to hang out and like fucking watch movies and get more drunk and just pass out and have a good time that's what bros do right and I woke up at the most inopportune time for him, which was the last 30 minutes of the movie. And I look over, and he's got a blanket pulled up to his nose, and he's just sitting there like, this is fucked up. This is not okay. And it was just kind of funny watching another person go through the same shit you did. You know, it's insane. Like, so uh, we always watch scary movies together. And that's one of those things that, like, you know, I he didn't like watching them at first. But when you can appreciate the kind of art form behind it, I think that scary movies are like the last bastion of like really individualized storytelling, which is what I feel about uh, Stars is, uh, or no, it's it's on Amazon. It's got to be on Amazon. Uh, Frank Miller's The Boys, and the TV show really differentiates from the comic book material, but it does still like hold some things true. I do not think I could have casted Billy Butcher any better than Carl Urban. I do like the kind of twist they're putting on the character. Um, I also don't recognize the guy that plays Homelander. And he's been in some stuff. 
and I don't really recognize him all that well. His name's Anthony Starr. Um, but he does a phenomenal job of conveying a TV screen Homelander from the comic book pages. I feel like you're really getting the cliff notes if you don't go back and read the graphic novel because it's actually very in-depth and, and there's a lot of things in it that are more graphic than they could put on television. And Frank Miller's kind of notorious for that. If you don't really recognize Frank Miller's work, he's the guy that did 300. He's the guy that did 30 Days of Night. And he also had a Dark Knight run. So, like, Frank Miller's been around and he's known for making some, like, really fucked up shit. And uh, there's another guy, Garth Enos, who does, like, equally fucked up shit, but, like, more so to a degree with, like, crossed and stuff like that but to get to see the kind of anti-hero like to see like what if the justice league was real and what if they were just dicks and that's more believable in today's society and i like that kind of counter programming like writing i think that those are the things that are making like interesting television interesting comic books like these are the things that like we should be paying attention to because they're putting out the complete opposite of the status quo that again is a vi- like individualized like storytelling, like people just aren't writing these stories unless they have like an agenda or a point of view. Some of the things that I've really liked that they changed was that uh, Jack from Jupiter is a huge character in the comic books, and he doesn't exist in the TV show, and they replaced him with Translucent, and uh, what they did with blowing up Translucent and like that was pretty cool, right? Like, uh, I really like that they took down one of the seven. And what I hear is, is that this, uh, the seven are going to start adopting characters from other storylines inside of the boys. Now, the boys comic book is pretty linear, except that the storyline always adheres to the one storyline. So there's not like multiple dimensions or different universes to take part in, right? Because it's one cohesive story. Now, what's cool about the TV show is that they've already deviated so hard from what the comic book did, it's kind of walking dead at this moment. Like, you're just not quite sure what's going to happen. And that's really cool in a TV show. Like, I know the source material, and I'm excited to see what they do. So, like, one of the things I really like that they're about to do is they're about to introduce a new member of the Seven called Stormfront. And Stormfront in the show is going to be a chick, and she's going to be, like, super feminist. But in the comic book, Stormfront used to be a Nazi, and he's a dude who does, like, lightning powers and shit like that. And they hire this uh, this organization called Payback to uh, get Stormfront out there and, like, attack the boys. Uh, I believe the female was in the hospital, and so the the prime difference between the boys TV show and the boys comic book is that the boys are all enhanced in the comic book they've taken a serum that gives them like semi superhero powers like you can take a better ass whooping you can throw some other punches but like like Frenchie is just modified Billy Butcher is just modified um the main character is just modified but the female's legit. She's like an actual mutant. And uh, so is Mother's Milk. 
And it's interesting just kind of watching the dichotomy come through between, like, the source material and the show. And, like, Amazon doesn't have, like, like really hardcore ratings, but they're pulling, like, back on a lot of triggers. Like, a real, like a lot of really scandalous shit. But I, I, with the way that they're doing the show, especially with the way that Homelander was in the last episode... Like, I just feel like they're waiting to unload that kind of content until later seasons. I think that they're trying to get the show to catch and then get into some of the really nasty nitty-gritty. Now, there was a lot of stuff covered in the first season of The Boys that came out of the comic books. Like, with the Evangelical Society and stuff like that. Like, like there was a lot of stuff that was really legit. Um, but I think they're trying to get the show to catch on and frankly, in the comic book, the main antagonist is already gone in the show. Crazy. And they never covered any of Billy Butcher having an actual live son in the show. And that's not his son, that's the Homelander's kid, but that's still his wife. And in the comic book, his wife is absolutely dead. And he killed Homelander's child. So, like, I'm really interested to see where the rest of this show goes. So I'm going to do a hard transition, and I'm going to get us into what has been going on in my life. So uh, I was recently part of a wedding, which was fantastic, by the way. It was really cool because it's Kendall Wyndham's house, Barry Wyndham's brother. Not a bad situation. But we had a lot of fun. So there's, like, nine groomsmen and, like, nine bridesmaids there's like 18 people in this wedding party which was cool because they just didn't want to leave anybody out and I think a lot of people felt like really good about being involved in something that we weren't really sure was ever going to happen which made it all the more special the ceremony was absolutely beautiful I fucking hated my tie I uh, so it was a Harry Potter themed wedding and I was assigned Gryffindor and I'm like if anybody knows me for who I am, I'm absolutely a Slytherin. However, it's your wedding. Decide what you want. I was happy to be paired with the brother of the bride in the same house, and there's only two per house, so like that was pretty cool. But overall, the wedding was absolutely beautiful, and it was decent food, and uh, like when we went to go take pictures... I may or may not have cavorted off with the groom's brother and got beers, and we were told not to. But that's what I do. That's what I do. And then uh, when they did the garter toss, like, all single boys come up here and be like, I just disappeared. <laughs> like, I went to go smoke a cigarette or some shit, like, fucking, I just walked off. Like, I'm not doing that shit. 34 years old. I'm not trying to do that shit at all. But I do want to finish the show on something that I feel like we could all talk about. And that's uh, the greatest tag teams of all time. I feel like we could spend a lot of time on that and just kind of like re like wrestle revel in some of the cool tag teams we have. So like some of the cool tag teams we have now are like the Usos, the Young Bucks, Pride and uh, Powerful, uh, the Best Friends, Lucha Express. Like, we're in a renaissance 
of like SCU, like really the Lucha Brothers, really good tag team content. And for me, I feel like tag team should be just as important, if not more so important, than the main title of a show. Like for me, the tag team championship should be the best two guys in the whole organization. Like, if you think back to like uh, Macho Man and Hogan, like that was a fucking insane tag team. The Dudley Boys. Would you not feature the Dudley Boys or Edge and Christian or, or fucking the Hardy Boys in any main event that you would run for a total like tag team tournament? Or just an event in general? Would you not finish off on a TLC triple threat between the Dudley Boys, Hardys, and Edge and Christian? You wouldn't. And those were like matches that were in the middle of the card. Or like when the Young Bucks fought the Hardys and they destroyed every table in Lakeland. So for me, the best tag teams of all time and the tag teams we should forever be talking about go as thus. It's like my Mount Rushmore of tag team talent. Alright? Number one, the Legion of Doom. They had the Doomsday device, they had the gimmick coming out, and they wrestled fucking everywhere. They wrestled all the time in any division. You just pick them up, and they were a feasible tag team. Loved those guys. And they had just the best gimmick. Hawk and Animal, the Legion of Doom. Just fucking spiky shoulder pads coming out, and just wrecking shit house because they were giant dudes. To me... That's one of the best tag teams that has ever existed. If not the best tag team that has ever existed. My number two, the Dudley Boys. The Dudley Boys had the best fucking gimmick. Devon, get the tables? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, every time they were in some shit, some tables would come out, and sometimes they were on fire. Were covered in tacks. They they power bombed Mae fucking Young through a table when she was like ninety eight years old. I mean, I don't know her actual age when it happened, but she was fucking old. And Bubba Ray did his best to like protect her, but still power bombed through a fucking table. Insanity. Number three on my Mount Rushmore is the New Age Outlaws. Oh, you didn't know. Yo, us better call somebody. It was the best. The badass Billy Gunn. The road dog Jesse James. The new age outlaws. And if you ain't down with that, we got two words for you. Suck it. Dude, the new age outlaws are probably one of the most dynamically different tag teams as far as individuals together. Because if you think about the Road Warriors and if you... or I'm sorry, the Legion of Doom or the Road Warriors, right? Um, or uh, Devon and Bubba Ray Dudley, the Dudley Boys. Like, they have a very similar wrestling style, so it, like, makes sense. But the Road Dog and Jesse James had such an eclectic mix of shit that didn't make sense... Essentially, they just slap dash that tag team together, and it worked. 
because Road Dog was your mouthpiece and Billy Gunn was your action guy. And these guys, like, they were instrumental to business. I actually was very impressed at the WWE giving them another, another tag team title run. That was pretty legit by them. And the fourth and last team on my list is the Young Bucks, Matt and Nick Jackson. I have almost never watched a match that they have had that I haven't been truly impressed by their storytelling and athleticism. Like, that's what the Rock and Roll Express should have been. That's what, like, Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels should have been. They're biological brothers, and they do a completely different moveset, but they also have their combination moveset, and the timing and the tag team moves is some of the most impressive shit I think I've ever seen. Their match with the Hardys, incredible. And what's cool about AEW is they're not making the tag team champions yet, but like you're always aware that they're a number one contender. Like, the Young Bucks could challenge it at, at any moment. So for me, like, those are the four tag teams of Mount Rushmore. The Road Warriors or the Legion of Doom. The Dudley Boys. The New Age Outlaws. And the Young Bucks. Like, I just don't see there being... A lot of tag teams. Like, I'm going to get a lot of heat for this, and I'm going to hear a lot of shit back about the other tag teams, but that's my Mount Rushmore. So, what I want you to do is comment me back, like, on the Facebook post. Who are your Mount Rushmore of tag team wrestlers? I want to hear that shit. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to hear what's coming up, and I want to hear different ideas from you guys. This has been the El Bastardo Magnifi Show number two. I'm the El Bastardo Magnifico Mad Max. Just remember, if you think you're classy, you're probably trashy. Good night.